Alright. Hey guys. Um, if I've not met you, I am Rachel. And I just got back from spending a week in Iowa. And I never thought that like driving into Stillwater I would be like, thank goodness I'm back. But I've really come to love Stillwater. So I'm actually like really excited to be here. I was really sad to miss last week. Um, but I know Hope did a fantastic job. So um, I'm really excited to jump into Philippians 1, um, starting in verse 21. So if you want to start flipping there, um, go for it. We'll take a second and we'll be in, we'll start reading in a little bit. But I think sometimes, um, for, for reference, sometimes people think that I'm older than I am. Um, and I'm only 21, so let's just to clarify that, that I'm only 21. Um, and that I have not gone to Bible college. I am um, an OSU senior, go Pokes. And I have not gone to seminary. So you might be wondering, like... Okay, like, what is this girl going to teach me? Um, and I've asked myself that question, so that's okay. Um, but I think sometimes it can be intimidating for me coming to a text, especially to teach it. It's very intimidating, um, which I don't know if you're supposed to admit while you're teaching, but we're already there. So, um, But any, any text, coming to the text and seeking to understand a text from the Bible, I think is intimidating whether you've been doing it your whole life or whether you just started doing it. Um, and I think sometimes whenever I come to, like, a teaching setting, whether it's, like, on a Wednesday night or it's on a Sunday morning and I'm listening to Scott or Ryan or Drew or Jim talk about the Bible, I, like, sit back a little bit and just get ready to take notes because I know that they are bringing this, like, wealth of knowledge that I don't have, and so I'm, like, ready to learn. And I think that that's awesome, and that's why people like that are primary teachers. That's why I'm not up here all the time. Um, but what I realize is that the goal of biblical teaching, really, for the people of God, is that we would be able, the lay people, if you will, the, like, the marketers and engineers and vet students and all of those things, that we would be able to come to the text tomorrow morning or tomorrow night or whenever we're reading it, we would be able to understand and walk through a process of understanding the Bible for ourselves outside of a teaching context. And so really what I want to do tonight is not to tell you things that are super profound um, or super like, oh my gosh, wow, Rachel, um, but really to kind of walk with you through a process that I've learned and are con I'm continuing to learn how to interpret and apply and understand the Bible. And so I want you to take notes tonight, but also I want you to kind of lean in um, and not just be like, well, whatever Rachel says, but to really like engage your mind and to actively be thinking about the text and thinking about this as a process that like, could I do this tomorrow morning when I sit down with my Bible? Could I do this myself? And so that's kind of the approach that I want us to take as we, as we read through the text. So I don't know about you guys, but sometimes whenever I read something, have you ever been like reading a something? Typically for me, it's a textbook. I like read a whole page and then I like start to turn the page and then I'm like, I have no idea what I just read. And you like read it again, and you're like, I'm gonna have to read it again. And so for me, maybe that's just a problem for me. Um, but we're gonna read this text a couple times through. Um, so make sure that you're turned there, whether you've got uh, an actual Bible or you've got your phone, something that you can read along. Um, but for this first time, we're gonna read through this three times. Um, and the first time, I'm going to ask Scott to come up, and he's going to read through this really slowly, 
and I don't actually want you to read along for the first time. So I just want you, maybe you need to close your eyes. I have trouble focusing if I don't close my eyes. So close your eyes, take a second. Scott's going to read this over us, and then we'll read through it a couple more times. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I, know lo I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that, because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but, for, but of your salvation. And, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that I saw I had, and now hear that I have. Sorry. In the same struggle that you saw that I had, and now hear that I have. Thanks, Scott. All right, so I want to give you some space now. Maybe you're not an uh, audio or oral uh learner. So we're going to take just a second and I want you to read through it for yourself starting in verse 21 to work your way all the way down to 30. And sometimes when we read, we read super fast, but I want you to read really slow like you were saying it to a little kid, to read it to yourself silently and then I'll read it one more time for us. I'm going to read this through one more time, so follow along with me. If there's something that sticks out to you, this is the third time going through it, so there, could, there should be a little bit of like familiarity, like, okay, I remember him saying this a little bit more now. Um, so if you've got notes or questions, jot those down as we go. So starting in verse 21 of chapter 1, Paul says, Paul's writing, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now if I live on in the flesh... 
This means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Alright, so you should be a little bit more familiar, so this is a good practice. When was the last time you heard something read three times in church? This is what I have to do in the mornings with my quiet time, so this is the process I'm giving to you. And I hope that there's more things that as we go along that's like, okay, yes, like, I read this through three times. I remember this being, this being said. So, any time that we're going to be walking through a text, we don't ever take it isolated. We don't ever want to isolate, for sure, a single verse and definitely um, a passage. And so, if you were here a couple weeks ago when Scott gave us the overview of Philippians, um, he talked about how Paul is most likely writing from a Roman prison, um, and he's writing to this church in Philippi. Um, and this is a church of people with a lot of like different socioeconomic backgrounds, and it's also a city that has a strong Roman culture. Um, and so those are important, just like contextual things to keep in the back of our mind as we start going through a text. And as we, re- we think about what Drew talked about and what Hope talked about last week about suffering, that these are all things that are going through our mind as we come to a text. So I'm very type A personality, so we're going to be walking through this step by step. Um, if you are not type A, I apologize. Welcome to my life. Um, so let's start with this first verse. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay, this is a very famous verse. If you've ever heard this verse in any context or part of it, put your hand up. Okay, great. All right, awesome. Um, So there's a lot of famous verses in Philippians, and this is one of them. And as I was, like, starting out, getting ready for this, I had this, like, moment of realizing that I had no idea what to live as Christ means. Like, I have heard this... I've probably heard this text taught before, and I just, like, had no idea what that meant. Um, My mom's an English teacher, and she would tell you that this sentence is kind of strange. Like, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Like, it seems like the grammar is, like, failing us to convey what this is meaning. Um, And so I'm thinking about these things, and I'm like, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I wouldn't say to live is Rachel. Like, this does not make any sense. Um, and I was like, oh no, like, I have to teach this, and I have no idea what this means. So I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it, and even though the, like, grammar structure is a little bit hard, what I realized is that it actually does communicate something, it's just that the idea of it is really foreign to us. And it's this idea that life itself is defined by and caught up in Christ, and that life cannot, it doesn't exist, and it cannot exist outside of him. 
And so the very act of being alive, the act of living true life, is Christ, because it's caught up in Christ. So when I thought about it that way, I was like, okay, this is just a foreign idea to me. It doesn't make sense. The grammar's a little tricky there. Um, But really, this, this verse, to live is Christ, to die is gain, sets up the rest of this this passage because it shows this idea of Paul kind of contrasts these things. We're going to see this later that he's talking about life to live, being alive is Christ and to die is gain. And if you think about that, that's really two good options that Paul's saying. He's saying like life is Christ. And so this is great. Like I'm physically alive and it's for Christ and he's the one who redeems that and it's found in him. And to die would be gain because as a follower of Jesus, he would be united with Christ. And, and the brokenness gap would be um, resolved if he was to die. And so it's interesting how Paul thinks about life and death here. He, he talks about it almost with a little bit of indifference. We'll see that throughout the passage of like, life here in the flesh is good because Jesus and the gospel. And death would be even better because I would go to be with Christ. And that is not the way that we talk about life and death. The, the very phrase, when, when people say, like, this is a life and death situation, it's like, this is serious. This is a life and death situation. Um, and we have these things called bucket lists because we're like, oh, my gosh, life is running out. And if I don't go skydiving, by the time I am 80 years old, I just don't know if I'm being ha- able to handle it. Um, so we have bucket lists. And actually, I think that the whole idea of bucket lists, if it comes down to it, our bucket lists actually have things like finishing college, getting married, having kids, getting a job that we love doing, that those things are actually what's on our bucket list, things we want to do. Um, but without the gospel, death feels so final. And so we have things like YOLO, like we're just going to try and maximize the, the pleasure and the experiences that I have now because when death comes, it's all over for those who don't follow Jesus. And so this is a big shift for Paul to say, to live is Christ and to die would be gain, that he holds both of those things as so differently, so differently than we would hold them. So this is a big game changer, and this is, sets up the whole passage for us. So we're going to keep going. After that, he says, now I live on, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. To remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So we keep seeing this life and death being contrasted, and then he also has this contrast between departing to be with Christ and staying um, to remain with them, which is kind of like interesting when you think about it, that Paul is saying, he, he talks about this like he has a choice. Like, he talks about it like, well, there's a red jacket and there's a blue jacket, and I really love some things about the red jacket, but, like, the blue jacket is, like, amazing, so, like, which one am I going to buy? It's like, Paul is waiting for a Roman official to tell him if he's going to be executed, if he's going to stay in prison, if he's going to be released, and so Paul actually doesn't have any control over whether he lives or dies, so... It kind of begs the question, why does Paul talk about it as if he does have control over it? And I think this is where the context is helpful, again, because we know that this letter to the Philippians is full of affection um, for this church, and unlike some of the other letters, it doesn't have as much rebuke 
or correction in it. But in Philippians 4, um, it talks about these two women. I'm not exactly sure how to say their names. Euodia and Syntyche. We're going with that. Um, and they had a disagreement, and it had kind of started to affect the rest of the church. And so the Philippian church is dealing with some disunity and division. And that's important because what Paul is demonstrating when he talks about, should I stay in the flesh and remain with you for your progress and your joy? Should I go to be with Jesus? Is that he's demonstrating humility and selflessness to a church that is divided because he's putting the needs of them, their progress and their joy above what would really be best for him is to go and be with Jesus. And even though he doesn't have a choice, he's not choosing between staying alive and dying in a literal sense, he's setting that up to say, but I'm choosing to stay with you, but I want to be here with you because it's what's best for you. And he demonstrates that humility and selflessness to a church that's struggling with division. Moving on, it says, he says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So we just read that. He's demonstrating this humility. He says, since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. So he's continuing to demonstrate his selflessness. He's talking about being so committed to the growth of the believers in Philippi. And what Paul's demonstrating is a personal commitment. So this is just Paul speaking. Paul's saying, I personally am committed to you, collective you, the, the church in Philippi. He's personally committed to the collective body of believers. And this really like rubs up against how we think about ourselves. We think of ourselves, especially in the West, as individuals. Um, and that my growth is separate from yours, and that um, if I work hard and I can just kind of stay in my lane, like regardless of what's going on around me, that like I can achieve, like we very much talk that way. And so there's a commentator that says it this way. He says, although it grates against the Western notions, that would be us, of the autonomy of the individual, Paul did not conceive of sanctification and ultimate salvation as solely private enterprises. So there's a lot of words in that. Um, but it's this idea that we think of ourselves as having autonomy and I can make whatever decisions I want regardless of who it affects um, and all of those things. But that Paul doesn't really talk about it that way. He talks about this process of becoming more like Jesus, sanctification, um, and salvation on a large scale as being not just for me, not just for you individually, but for us together. That's a lot different from how we think about things. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this phrase or seen this. There's like a graphic that goes around on social media like every six months, I think. Um, but it says something to this effect. It says, don't burn yourself up to keep others warm. Has anybody ever seen that? Like, it's, kind of, it's like, oh, yeah. Like, whenever I first read that, it like affirms that I f definitely think of myself as an individual. Because I'm like, that's right. Like... I'm not going to, like, spend all my time for people, and, like, I need some time for me, and I think that it's important for us to value, obviously, ourselves as individuals, but I think that there's something that Paul's talking about here that rubs up against that. Um, it's more collective. Um, so then we, he transitions here. There's a paragraph break, and he says, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
And the first time I read this, I was like so caught off guard because that little phrase that sets it up, just one thing. It's like something somebody says as they're walking out the door. Like, just one thing, don't like forget to lock it. Like, on your way out, just remember, like, something super casual. And that is not what Paul does. He's like, just one thing, no big deal, um, live your life worthy of the gospel. The gospel being Jesus' birth and his work and life, death, resurrection, the story that has changed the very fabric of reality. Live your life's worthy of that. All right. Um, and then it's like, it's like, whoa, what? Like, I, uh, I've been in a couple situations where something like this happens, and it just like, it's like, I don't know how to respond to this. So I said I was in Iowa, and I was at my cousin's wedding, and my sister and I are sitting at this table. My cousin is the guy getting married. We don't know her family at all. So we're sitting there with her uncle, and we're introducing ourselves, and we're like, yeah, like, we're the cousins, you know, and we're just having a very casual conversation, and her uncle, um, who's the brother of her mom, says, yeah, you know, whenever I was 22 years old, I found out I had a sister. We were like, oh, okay, and, like, got up and went, and, like, got a drink. We were like, what is happening? We're, like, turning to, I was like, did you, did we... Did you lose her for 22 years? Like, where was she? Like, were you gone? Like, I have so many questions. And it was so casual. It was like, I didn't know I had a sister until I was 22 years old. Like, just one thing. Um, and he provided no explanation. We later found out that she was adopted. This was her birth brother. And I was like, okay, this makes sense. Um, but Paul provides more explanation than that uncle did. And we were just, like, floored. Like, just one thing. Um, and that's a little bit of, of how it feels reading this. Like, just one thing drops a bomb. Um, but Paul does not leave us hanging. But it does beg this question, what does it mean to live lives worthy of the gospel? Um, and so this is the explanation that Paul gives. He says, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. So he kind of gives us these buckets of this is what it means, this is part of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, and it's to live a life that is defined by standing firm in one spirit, the one spirit being the Holy Spirit, um, and the outworking of the Holy Spirit is spiritual gifts. So all of those things, um, righteousness, peace, self-control, joy, I can't say I'm out of order, I just realized, um, <laughs> all of the gifts of the spirit is the outworking of the one spirit, standing firm in one spirit. Um, and, and he also says, in one accord, um, together with other believers, that would be being in unity with, with other believers. And we'll talk more about these as we go. But um, he also says, contending together for the faith of the gospel. And so this word contending is like, like striving, like competing, like seeking to hold on to something. Um, and it's this idea of striving for faithfulness um, to the gospel. And then the last thing he says, not being frightened in any way um, by your opponents. And so living in boldness and confidence, um, even when there's opposition, that these are the markers um, of living a life worthy of the gospel. And these are the things that mark our salvation, that they flow from the gospel, and so they mark our salvation. And as they do that, they mark destruction for those who do not follow Jesus. And so that's that, 
this is a sign of destruction for them, those who have not chosen to follow Jesus, but of our salvation. It's a marker of our salvation as we are working out our salvation as we follow Jesus. So this last last section, he says, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle, you saw I had, and now hear that I have. So this is another surprising twist. Um, suffering is a gift from Christ. Um, I know that Hope talked about this, but as I was reading it, I was like, this is like somebody saying, like, Scott, I have a gift for you. Tomorrow you'll be running a marathon. It's like, that is suffering. That is only pain, especially if you've not been training for it. And it would be like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, I have a gift for you. Here's something terrible. And if somebody said that to me, if they were like, Rachel, tomorrow you get to... Marathon's the worst thing I can think of, sorry. Uh, marathon, <laughs> you have to run a marathon. Um, I would say, you don't understand what a gift is. Because you keep saying, I have a gift for you, Rachel, and then you keep giving me something terrible. Um, but the way that Paul talks about it, I kind of wonder if it's actually my understanding of gifts that has to change and that needs to be reevaluated because suffering is a gift because it's connecting us to the gospel story. Um, and it's an honor to suffer for Jesus. Um, we can understand suffering because of our outlook back to the beginning of that life is Christ, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so that gives us a new perspective on our physical life and our physical suffering. Um, and suffering also allows us to connect to other believers um, as we suffer alongside each other and we're encouraging each other. So there's lots of big things going on in a text like this. We've Now we've read it a couple times. We've gone verse by verse. We're starting to connect some things. We're saying, okay, this bottom text connects to the first verse. We're starting to make some connections. Um, and so now I want us to zoom out a little bit from we've been kind of granularly going through this. Um, and I want us to now move to, okay, we just did, if you remember our cards, would be this side for you guys. What is the author saying? What is the author saying to the people that it was written to? So we just did that. Um, so now we're going to move up and we're going to say, what, what does this teach us about God, about his mission, about the church? And we've been going through those questions every week with all of these texts that we've been going through. Um, and it's such good practice for us to look at a text after we've gone through it and then zoom out and say, okay, what does this teach me broadly, the universal truth um, about God? And so I want you to get your papers if you don't have one. We have some up here. Um, and just take a couple of minutes to work through. We're, I'm going to split the room in half. So this half, you guys are going to start from the top, the top of the question, starting with what does this teach us about God? And you guys are going to start up from the bottom. That way we can kind of get both covered. Um, so start discussing those things. It could be any part of this text. And then we'll come back in just a second. Start this back up. Okay, so another thing that we've been doing each week is trying to distill down the text into a single sentence. And I am a rambler, and so this is very difficult for me. So I, my sentence is a run-on, and I'm, I'm just going to own it, and I'm sorry. Um, but if I could communicate what Philippians 1, 21 through 30 um, is saying in a single, longer sentence, it would be this. It would be that living worthy of the gospel means having a right perspective on life and death, 
a personal commitment to fellow believers and embracing suffering. So I'll read it again. This is everything that I've already said, everything that we've already worked through. This is not new. This is just distilling it all down. So living worthy of the gospel means a right perspective on life and death, a personal commitment to fellow believers, and embracing suffering. And so just like Drew and Kately were talking about, the gospel acts as the catalyst for this transformation. So without the gospel, none of the transformation in our lives can occur. And so we see that the transformation works itself out um, in those three buckets I just gave you about right perspective on life and death, um, so on and so forth. So we start with the gospel as the catalyst, the work of Jesus. Um, And slowly through the process of becoming more like Jesus, the process of sanctification, um, we begin to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. And I think sometimes um, it's helpful to think of it like marriage. I did not come up with this myself. Someone much wiser and older said this, and I was like, that is profound. Um, Of whenever people are getting married, they know what they're getting into and they're signing up for it, but they don't, like, know what they're getting into. Like, they don't know that, like, eight years down the road, they're going to have a kid, and there's going to be this night, and they're like, oh my gosh, like, this is so hard. Like, but they, but they do know. And when they say yes to marriage, they say yes to um, this process of learning how to be married. Um, and I think that it's similar, but magnified on such a, a bigger scale, that when we say yes to Jesus, we know what we're signing up for, but we also figure out what it means to say yes to Jesus um, as we figure out this is how we live a life worthy of the gospel. And so I just want to walk through those three things and the implications that they have for us, um, starting with that first big piece that Paul talks about when he says to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's this new gospel-oriented right perspective on life and death. Um, And so when we say that life is found in Jesus The opposite of that means that life is not found in anything else. And that means that it's not found in how much money we make or what our salary is compared to the people we graduated with. Or when we come back for high school reunion, we're like, what are you doing? I'm a dentist. Um, I'm not going to dentistry school, but that seems impressive to me. I'm a dentist. And they're like, oh, like I work at Chick-fil-A. So it's like, it's not found in that. It's not found in our our wealth. Um, It's not found in the things we can achieve that have significance, whether it is things that the world would deem as significant, um, or things that we just personally think of as, like, this is really significant for me to, like, buy a house five years after I get out of school, like, whatever that is, that life is not found in those things that we assign significance to, and it's also not found in the affirmation of other people. Even, Even though affirmation of others is a good thing, Um, life is not found in that. And so um, that's a different perspective than the way that we think about things. And I think sometimes we think about that theoretically like, yeah, like I'm a broke college student, so yeah, like life is not found in wealth because like I have none. Um, But I think there's been situations in my life where I realized that there's actually things that I think actually hold a little bit of life outside of Jesus until those things are like gut-checked. A little bit. Um, Last summer with the pandemic, I was supposed to have an internship in Dallas, and it got canceled, and I ended up having to stay in Stillwater, which at the time was like, oh no, like, everyone left and all the traffic was gone, and I was like, 
I'm not going to make it. I'm just not going to make it. Um, and I had to work at Chick-fil-A, so um, 40 hours a week in fast food. That will humble you very fast. Um, and I just realized, like, well, this is hard for me, like, to tell people, like, I'm working at Chick-fil-A after two years of college. Like, I really wanted this internship. And there was a lot of, okay, Rachel, like, you put a lot of stock in the, like, significance of getting that internship um, or even the wealth that that would have given at some level. Um, and so this new perspective on life and death also means that we don't have to be anxious. And I know that sounds, like, so simple. Like, oh, Rachel, if it was just that easy, like, just don't be anxious. Um, and that's not what I'm saying. But it's this idea that our present, our physical life for as many years as we were on Earth, and our future of after we die, that those things are secure and that our hope is in Jesus. And so if my present and my future are secure, those are like the things that I worry about. Is like what's going to happen right now and then like what's going to happen tomorrow and what's going to happen in 20 years and all of those things. And I think that this is actually really hard for me. I, I said I'm a planner. What I really meant, what you should have heard is I'm a worrier um, because I plan so that I don't have to worry as much about things, and I try to, like, micromanage my schedule and pack in as much productivity as I can and try to achieve all these things. Um, but really, I think sometimes it can be as a result of being anxious um, or fearful of the future, and, and Paul talks about that when he says to not be frightened, um, even when there's opposition. And I think that... With a right understanding of life and death, it redefines how we think about things and how we worry, or rather shouldn't worry. Um, that worrying doesn't add anything because it can't take away or add life, because life is found in Jesus. So the second big bucket of um, implications for living a life worthy of the gospel is this personal commitment to fellow believers. So we talked about this, that our individual identities, that me as Rachel, that my identity is now caught up in the collective church um, and the story of Jesus redeeming all things to himself through the church. And that's really different um, from what the world would tell us and what I hear when I go to campus. Um, it's like, Rachel, you can conquer the world, you can do whatever, and like, no matter what's going on, like, you can do whatever you want. Um, and I think some of that is good, but there's this idea that living a life worthy of the gospel, that we are saved to the gospel and we're saved to be part of a family. And so what, is, what does it mean to be personally committed um, to the collective body, to fellow believers? Um, if, if you follow Jesus, um, whenever you said yes to, to following Jesus, the Spirit gave you gifts um, that are unique to you. And so it means using those gifts. If you have the gift of encouragement, it means not just encouraging yourself. Um, if you have the gift of hospitality, it means inviting people over. It means serving. If you have the gift of teaching. It means learning how to teach and doing those things for the good of the church, not just for me to be hospitable or for me to be good at teaching, but to edify and build up the church. It means that we submit ourselves to accountability uh, with other believers, that we respond graciously um, whenever we're checked and rebuked on things. Um, and it means that we get to be part of encouraging each other and just the joy of friendship. 
I think sometimes we don't talk about that enough, that, like, it is such a joy to be in community. Um, and there's so much life that flows from Christ and from the gospel through community um, for our joy and our benefit. And it means that we're actively looking for ways to serve um, and that we're, like, like J.C. talked about, being united. Um, it means that we don't bash each other, um, whether we know each other or not, um, that we don't get to talk that way about the bride of Christ, that we're slow to speak, slow to become angry with each other, um, and we're united in the Spirit. And this idea of a personal commitment means that we have to make time and that we have to be intentional, and that means that there will be something else that we don't do. Um, and I think that that has been hard for me because I want to do everything. I want to do every activity that OSU offers, which is impossible. Um, and I want to make time for church and to be with older believers. And so I just think it's important for, like, for me as a student to say to you that I know that there are so many things vying for your attention. There's so many things that are going to build your resume and do all of those things. Um, but being personally committed to the collective church takes time. And it is a commitment that we um, are caught up in when we say yes to Jesus. So that last thing um, is embracing suffering. That we should expect suffering. Um, the Bible tells us that. That if we have said yes to following Jesus, that we should expect suffering um, because the world hated Jesus. And so um, by association, um, they will sometimes hate us, which I know is a strong word. Um, but... James 1 talks about being joyful and steadfast in suffering um, and that re, like, redefining how we think about the gift of suffering. Like Those words don't even go together in my mind, but they go together a lot in the Bible. Um, and so there's, there's a learning curve there that has to happen of me understanding suffering um, that way. And we talked about, um, we went through the book of Habakkuk, um, this last semester, and we learned the difference between complaint and lament and complaining for the sake of complaining that um, when we embrace suffering, we don't complain for the sake of complaining, um, but we lament that there is a value in expressing when things are hard. Um, suffering as a gift doesn't mean that it's any less hard, um, but it means that we're complaining, seeking to find faith um, and contend for the faith and hold on to that in the midst of suffering. Um, and lastly, this idea that suffering connects us to believers and this idea of being transparent with each other and being honest about when things are hard that we don't um, just get like the benefits of friendship without the like hard conversations and the like I have to open up to you about how I'm feeling. Um, that, that's, that's how we suffer together is, is through being honest and, and transparent and encouraging each other. Um, and even, like, the physical, like, helping each other through suffering, the Philippians sent Paul money, um, and they encouraged him spiritually, and so it's, it's both of those things, that embracing suffering means a new understanding of what it means to suffer as a gift, um, and to suffer well with other people, I think is a gift that um, I see in older believers, something that they do well, and something that we should be moving towards as we embrace suffering more. So we have these, these buckets of here's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. And I have to be honest, this is like the hard part of the process for me. 
of, okay, this is what this means, like, this is what this teaches us about God and his mission and the church and the gospel, all those things, and then, like, how do I connect that to, like, my life? Um, because I think a lot of times I feel that disconnect of, like, I know this is true, but, like, I'm having this situation where I'm really mad at this person who's also a believer, and, like, I don't feel united with them, like, how do I make the connection? Um, and I think that a lot of times, um, that's actually me, like, averting, um, and avoiding, like, a moment of decision. Um, and so I was, I was actually talking to, um, an older believer not very long ago, and I was kind of, like, going through this process of, like, I know this is true, but, like, this is how I am, and, like, this is my personality, and, like, uh, I just, like, don't know how to connect this, I don't know how to trust this, and, um, it was, like, the perfect thing that I needed and also did not want. Um, she said, okay, Rachel, like, this is what the Lord has said, so we just walked through this. This is what the Lord, speaking through Paul, has said is true, that life is defined by Christ, and that you don't have to be anxious, um, about the present, or um, that you need to embrace this hard suffering as a gift. This is what the Lord had said. And you have a decision of whether you will trust what God has said and believe that that's true, um, or you have a choice to trust your feelings um, and say, like, I don't know, I just, like, this situation just feels, like, out of control, and, like, I just feel anxious about this, and that there's those those two things, that... Like, suffering never feels like a gift. Like, I have yet to suffer and be like, what a joy. What a joy this is to run this marathon uh, with this person or in this relationship or with my family. Um, but what the Lord, if, if we follow Jesus, we believe that what God has said is true. Um, and so we, we have a choice whether we're going to believe that um, and operate out of that. And so um, what I want to do for the ending of our time um, is to punt it back to you guys, um, because I think this is specific for each of us, um, but to choose one of those three things, so a right perspective on life and death, uh, a personal commitment to fellow believers and embracing suffering, to choose one of those things, or maybe two, um, and to talk through what would it mean for my life if I believed what Paul said about suffering? What would it mean for my life if I believed um, that I have a responsibility to be connected to the fellow believers. Um, what would the implications be? What, what would change about my life? What decisions would I make differently? Um, and I think it can be easy for me to be really general, but I would encourage you to be specific um, as an act of submitting to accountability um, to the, the people that you're sitting next to of, okay, like this is something I really struggle with or this is something that I'm working on. Um, what would it look like? to live a life worthy of the gospel in this area. So um, I'm going to give you guys some time to process that together, um, and then we'll come back and I'll close with some prayer.